The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, folks, you ready? Study about the Holy Spirit. Y'all get a handout. Continue in our in our look uh, at Wayne Grudem's book um, on uh, systematic theology, and we're studying the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, suffice it to say, we could be a long time studying that. It's an incredible subject. Uh, we've already looked at um, the definition of the work of the Spirit that Grudem gives us here. The work of the Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Well, he does a lot more than that, but that is uh, what we're going to focus on a little bit tonight to talk about he, how he does that. We've already discussed the personality of the Spirit. So the Spirit is not an impersonal force like electricity or something running through the universe. Still less is he like the force like, use the force, Luke, something like that, nothing like that. I never sensed that the, the force in Star Wars was personal. I have no idea. But there's sometimes a misunderstanding about the spirit that he's some kind of an impersonal force. We have already totally refuted that. The spirit has emotions. He can be grieved. He can, he can give joy. There's, there's the emotional side. He can make decisions. He has a will. He communicates. He is a person. Uh, the personality of the Spirit. We've talked about that. And we have discussed the deity of the Spirit. We are triune in our theology. We believe in one God existing eternally in three persons. And the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We've discussed all that. Now, last time we began to talk about how the Holy Spirit empowers. There's such a connection, especially in the New Testament, between the Holy Spirit and power. The Spirit gives power. And we began discussing last time how he does that. He gives life. It says in Romans 8, 2, uh, that through Christ Jesus, the law, the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. He is the spirit of life and he gives life. We've already talked about that. Psalm 104 says he gives biological life to all living creatures. He gave physical life to Jesus Christ in Mary's womb. Uh, the angel said the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born of you will be called the Son of God. But it's the Spirit that gave physical life to Jesus' body, His human body inside Mary's womb. He gives spiritual life to Christians at regeneration. In John chapter 3, Jesus said you have to be born of water and the Spirit. If you're not born of the Spirit, you're not going to go to heaven. You must be born again. You must be born by the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And so the Spirit um, uh, gives new life, regeneration. And the Spirit will give life to our mortal bodies, it says in Romans 8. This is all review. We discussed this last time. But the Spirit will, will raise your bodies from the grave. Talk about power. That's incredible. But the Spirit, I, I tell you what, you really need to meditate on that, to think what you will contribute to raising your own moldering body from the grave? And the answer is nothing. It's something that passively is going to be done to you by the power of God through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, He's going to raise your body up and He's going to give you a resurrection body. That's incredible. Keep that in mind because that's the same power that's at work in you spiritually. Uh, so we talked about all that, the, the empowering work of the Spirit. But He also gives power for service. And that is so important. The Spirit empowers us to serve God. Now, we saw this in the Old Testament. It was The Holy Spirit was given at key points to leaders in the Old Testament. There were certain times when the Spirit would come on Old Testament leaders. A good example of this was King Saul. The Holy Spirit came on Saul and he was able to rise up militarily. We also see this in the book of Judges even before that. You know, the Spirit comes on Samson and he tears apart a lion as though it were a young goat. You know, the Spirit comes on a lot of these leaders to enable them to, to uh, succeed militarily. So the Spirit comes and strengthens these Old Testament leaders at key moments in Israel's history. But of course, the Spirit also can depart from these leaders. The Spirit departed from Saul. There's a clear saying of this in 1 Samuel in which the, the Spirit had gone away uh, from Saul. He didn't have the, the ministry of the Spirit anymore. And therefore, it's a very poignant thing when David says in Psalm 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Uh, he didn't have that promise that we have that he will be with us forever. The spirit, the counsel will be with you forever. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He didn't have that promise. And he had already seen the example of how King Saul lost the spirit. The spirit departed from Saul. And actually, he was tormented by an evil spirit. And so David was, with good reason, very, very afraid that the spirit would leave him. Uh, we also saw in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit was given to other skilled persons at key points. The Spirit, for example, came on Bezalel, a, a guy who had, had, had skill in making uh, all kinds of, of um, artistic things that were used around the tabernacle, etc. And so the Spirit is connected at that moment with his, his abilities um, given uh, to skilled people at various points. Also, occasionally, from time to time, the Spirit is given to groups of people or to the nation as a whole. Look at the bottom of page one there, Isaiah 63. It says, then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? See that? That's uh, Isaiah 60, 63, verse 11. He set his spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths like a horse in the open country. They did not stumble. Like cattle go, that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the spirit of the Lord. Now, this is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Now, had it not been for Isaiah 63, we would not have seen the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Exodus. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned specifically there. But Isaiah, filled with the Spirit, looking back, says it was the Spirit that guided them. It was the Spirit that brought them out of Egypt, the Spirit of God. And then uh, Haggai 2.5, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my Spirit remains among you, do not fear. So there's a statement that the Spirit is among the people of God. That's in the Old Testament. My Spirit remains among you, so do not fear. And then uh, 1 Samuel 19, 19 and 20. We know this story. This is an interesting one. A word came to Saul. David is in Nioth at, Ra at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. This is when Saul is hunting David down like a partridge, he said. He wants to kill him. And so he sends men to go arrest David. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they prophesied. So they just begin to prophesy. The Spirit of God comes upon them. Uh, also, Saul prophesies, Saul himself. And so there was this saying, is Saul also among the prophets? And so the Spirit of God is active. We should not think that the Spirit of God somehow makes his first entrance of the day of Pentecost. Uh, the Spirit of God was active among the people of God. Uh, in Ezekiel uh, 11.5, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and he told me to say, This is what the Lord says. This, that is what you're saying, O house of Israel, but I know what is going through your mind, etc. The Spirit comes upon the prophet and tells him to say something. We're going to come to that, God willing, later on this evening. But it is the Spirit that told Ezekiel the words to say. Then, after a series of terrifying prophecies against Israel in that same chapter, Ezekiel 11:13. Now, as I was prophesying, Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Can you imagine that? Ezekiel is prophesying what the Spirit told him to say. And while he's prophesying, this guy drops dead. It's an incredible thing. Then I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Ah, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? But you have a sense of the power of the Spirit in that. It was just a few verses earlier that it was the Spirit that told Ezekiel to say the things that led to this man falling down dead. And a time is predicted when the Spirit would anoint the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Some people point to this passage in connection with Revelation, where it talks about the sevenfold Spirit in front of the uh, throne. And so there's seven descriptions of the Spirit here, the Spirit of the Lord, and then there's, there's three couplets, three times two is six. And then so you have seven, a sevenfold description of the Spirit here. I don't know for sure that that's what Revelation is talking about when it talks about the sevenfold Spirit. Some translations go the seven spirits of God before the throne, etc. But there it is, a description of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, connected with what? What's he connected with in Isaiah 11? The shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Who's the branch that comes from the stump of Jesse? It is Christ. And so this is the Messiah. 
and he is the anointed one. And it seems very much anointed with the spirit. You know, Messiah, Christ means anointed one. In the Old Testament, the kings were anointed with oil. The oil, I believe, represented the presence of the spirit on them. Some of the kings just got a got an anointing with oil and that's all. They were wicked men who didn't lead in any way by the power of the spirit. Others, like David, were led and influenced by the spirit. But Jesus, above all, was anointed or filled with the spirit in every way. And so Isaiah 11 said that's what's going to happen. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So there's such a close relationship between Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, and the Spirit. The Spirit will be on Christ. He will be anointed with Christ, with the Spirit, sorry. And then Isaiah 61. Uh, this is a very famous statement. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is, is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for uh, the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is famous because this is how Jesus began his preaching ministry in his hometown. He found this place in Isaiah's scroll. He rolls it open and then reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's the Messiah language. And then he rolls up the scroll and he sits down and he says, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. What a moment. He was claiming to be the Messiah, but it was specifically in reference to the ministry of the spirit. The spirit was on Christ. Now, I bring you to one of the toughest questions for me concerning the ministry of the spirit. It's a difficult question. I know you come here to get answers to difficult questions, not to have difficult questions raised. Well, what is the question? My question is, what is the difference between the ministry of the Spirit among God's people in the Old Testament and it is now after Pentecost? It's a very poignant question for me. I make these kinds of statements. Apart from the ministry of the Spirit, we can't be born again. Apart from the ministry of the Spirit, we can't repent or turn to Christ. We will never feel any conviction of sin apart from the ministry of the Spirit. We'll never become a Christian unless the Spirit does it. All of those things I believe to be true statements. My question is, were there believers in the Old Testament? Did any Old Old Testament believers repent and trust and turn and follow? And if the answer is yes, how did they do it apart from the Spirit? And if the Spirit was doing it, then what really happened at Pentecost? What's the big difference? Jesus makes these strong statements saying, if I don't go to the Father, the Counselor will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's saying it's a very significant moment for him to go up and send down the Spirit. And it makes an open statement in John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and called out in a loud voice, if anyone he is thirsty, he says. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then John tells us in John seven thirty nine. by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in Christ were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. There it is. That's a very strong demarcation. The spirit hadn't been given. And so my question is then, what was the nature of Old Testament saints' experience with God? What did David mean when he said, take not your Holy Spirit from me? Is my experience with the Spirit different from David's? Did he just get it because he was the king? But now everybody gets it. It says in Acts chapter 2, based on Joel 2, I'll pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Everybody gets the Spirit if you believe in Jesus. That's, that's where I lean. It's more universe, universality than uh, experience that David and I do have the same experience. I don't know. Thoughts on this, this deep question? Any ideas? What is the difference in the experience of the Old Testament saints with the Spirit and our experience? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, go ahead. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Bezalel. Right. Do we not recognize that that is a collision in the Palestine? It's possible. Or is it right, like a lack of recognition? Maybe Bezalel just working didn't know it was the Spirit that helped him. Maybe so. Yeah. 
immediate experience of how to do all those things. It's possible. A sense of, the, of awareness of the Spirit. Of course, I would say that I think the Spirit does things in us and we're not always aware of what He's doing. Uh, there's a time that we can be using our gifts and not, not even know that the Spirit is using us and later on, you know, we have an insight. You know, somebody might say, boy, that really encouraged me when you said that or comforted me in some way. And we weren't even aware that the Spirit was using us. We're just, just ministering. But it could be. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, John. All right. Well, good. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It could be. And we have such a strong testimony in Je- when Jesus says um, that the world cannot receive him, the counselor, it can't receive him. But you know him for he will be with you and will be in you. He will live in you. So there's a sense of what we call the indwelling of the spirit. And we don't have a record of that kind of thing going on. Rather, it seems the spirit comes upon people. There's more of an on thing than an in thing. Although I don't think we want to push that language too much. All I'm saying is these are some barriers I want to set up in your mind. Let's not imagine the spirit began his work the day of Pentecost. He was very active in God's people in the Old Testament and many verses testify to that. However, it is clear from Jesus' statement from John in John 7:39 that something huge happened when Jesus ascended after having died on the cross. And, and there, it was a big thing for him to pour out the Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit is a major feature of our present experience with Christ. It is a big deal. It's the very thing that uh, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And in other words, it's a universal promise, a guarantee that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit if you simply repent and believe in Christ. And I don't find that in the Old Testament. I don't find that promise. It's a, new, it's a Pentecost promise. It's a new covenant promise. We get the gift of the Spirit. All right, well, let's keep going. But at least we establish this in our minds. What the Spirit was doing in the Old Testament, I think he does even more in the New and in an even deeper and more personal personal way. All right, so what happens in the New Testament? I'm on page three in our outline. One of the things we see is that he empowers Christ for ministry. I've already talked about that briefly. But in Matthew 3, verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. So here comes the Holy Spirit. He's presenting himself in the form of a dove and he remains on Christ, a visible representation of the presence of the Spirit in Jesus's life. And in Luke 4, 1 1 and 2, it says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So the Spirit led him into the desert. Talk more about another verse later on concerning that. But there the Spirit involved in Jesus' ministry. Luke 4, 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. By the way, I noticed some time ago the bracketing aspect there. Jesus enters enters the desert filled with the Spirit to encounter the devil. He enters the desert filled with the Spirit. Jesus leaves the desert filled with the Spirit. How about you? Do you enter your temptation and leave your temptation both filled with the Spirit? That's a good question. The Alpha and the Omega, you know. We enter times of testing, don't we? We have times of temptation. Be filled with the Spirit and resolve that by the power of the Spirit, you will exit the temptation filled with the Spirit as well. I think that's a powerful thing. Yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he didn't have any power, it seems, to resist. That's a good point. That's a good point, and we, we should keep that in mind. One of the power, the power of the Spirit enables us to, uh, to resist the temptation, resist the devil. Uh, that's, that's so important. Good point. All right, and then I've already alluded to this. This is in Luke 4, 16 through 21, and that is when Jesus reads that prophecy from Isaiah and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a potent moment. That'd be one of those moments where you would love to have been there, to see, hear the gasps among the people. 
I mean, they're just astonished that he would, he would say something like that, but they actually speak well of him initially. It's not until he basically says, we're going to the Gentiles that they, how shall I put it in the vernacular, freak out. And that was a regular pattern among the Jews. They just couldn't handle it. And uh, they push him to a cliff and they want to they push him off. But uh, he just moves right through the crowd and escapes. Yes. It is. And, and as usual, whenever we're working on this, we have to realize that God has accommodated himself to us concerning language. Language is a tool. Words like full or full of, etc. are just they're just words, they're concepts. So we have to imagine that it doesn't fully explain what's going on there. But I think we have a sense that he's full of the spirit the way a sail is full of wind or something like that. He's just controlled by it. The spirit is kind of all over and around and through what he's doing. But yes, I, I think we acknowledge that there's no, at that moment, blending of the persons of the Trinity so that we only have two persons or something. But rather, just that the Spirit is completely over and around and through and involved in everything Jesus is doing. So that's that's a good question. Very, very good question. So the Spirit empowers Christ for ministry. You know, he, he talks about driving out demons. And he says, and if I, by the Spirit, drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, Matthew 12:28, and in Acts 10:38, this is Peter's summary of Jesus's life and ministry that he's giving to Cornelius the centurion as he's preaching the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius is about to receive the Holy Spirit. What a great moment for Cornelius, but he's preaching the gospel, Peter is. And he summarizes Jesus's ministry, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. And so the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus for ministry. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we would, we would have to acknowledge that every one of Jesus' miracles were done by the power of the Spirit. He did, he did miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a great power for ministry here. Also, uh, I didn't mention it here in the outline, but... Um, John the Baptist, right at the very beginning, uh, really even before Jesus ministered, he's talking about his own ministry. You remember this? And John the Baptist was, uh, they were asking if he was the Christ. And um, he he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his birth. It says uh, his father, Zechariah, was told he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. So he was filled with the Spirit, but uh, he was not the Messiah. And he very clearly testified to that. But do you remember how he distinguished his ministry from that of Jesus? He said, after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I only baptize with water. So the distinction of Jesus and John the Baptist is what he baptizes with. Now, my own interpretation, others have different interpretations of of this, but I, I think when John said he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, um, I think it would be just as accurate to say he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or fire. That's the way I read it. Because fire in, G, in John's uh, statement there uh, is, is one of wrath and judgment. All right. You know, he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But when you speak to a group, you can say he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so the group will experience both. But and each individual just experiences one. And so I think you're either going to get this from Jesus. You're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit or he's going to baptize you with fire. One or the other. You're going to get either one from Jesus. He, that's, that's the difference between John is just a forerunner. He's a prophet. He's a speaker. He's not the Messiah. Jesus has power and he gives you the Holy Spirit or he's going to, he's going to baptize you with fire such as he will clear his threshing floor and he's going to burn up that chaff with unquenchable fire. So that's you see how important the ministry of the Spirit is in Jesus' life and ministry. Empowerment of Christ for ministry. Uh, we also see the empowerment of Christ's disciples for ministry. You really have to see, I mean, sometime do a, a study with a concordance or a computer program on the word Spirit in the book of Acts. It's overwhelming. Over 60 times the Spirit is mentioned in the book of Acts. The Spirit is constantly empowering those disciples to do great things for Christ. Uh, Acts 1.8, of course, some of you can quote it from memory. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is so important and how easy it is for us to forget it. You know, if I were to ask you right now to write down the names of five unbelievers that you would like to lead to Christ over the next year and you wrote down those names and looked at them, I bet you at least one or two of those names would strike you with some fear. You look at it and say, how am I going to witness to that person? Maybe it's a relative, maybe a co-worker, a neighbor. Maybe there's somebody in your life and the Lord is leading you to witness to them. And it isn't long before you bump into that old enemy, fear of man, fear of humanity. We're afraid of people, afraid to share the gospel. I believe the Holy Spirit is given uh, to us so that we have power to overcome that obstacle, power to overcome it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And, and if you feel weak as a witness, if you haven't witnessed to any unbeliever in the last year or the last six months or something like that, you ought to get on your knees and say, Lord, based on Acts 1.8, I'm going to ask you for power to be a witness for Christ this week. I'm going to ask you for power to witness to a waitress, power to witness to uh, somebody at a convenience store. I'm going to ask for power uh, to witness to a, a relative, you know, a lost brother or sister, uh, a brother-in-law, somebody. I'm going to witness uh, for you this week, Lord. You should pray that prayer. But say, Lord, I can't do it unless you help me. Remember what Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because what does Paul do when he's weak? What do you think Paul does when he knows he's weak and the Lord wants him to do something? What do you think he does? He prays. He goes to the Lord for power. He asks for what he wants, what he needs. So you ought to do the same. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And if you're not sure what that power looks like, just read the book of Acts. Say, Lord, I'm going to read these 28 chapters. Maybe take two days or three days and just read through the book of Acts and say, what does the Spirit do to advance the kingdom of Christ in the book of Acts? It's incredible. Look, for example, at Acts 4. Acts 4, uh, Acts 3, the Spirit gives Peter and John power to uh, heal a famous beggar. This beggar is put every day at the temple gate called Beautiful to beg from those going in and out. You know, he, he's looking for money. Everybody knows this guy. And you remember how Peter and John look at him and, and they say that famous statement, uh, silver or gold, we have none, but what we have we give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And this man jumps up and he, he's healed and he does his miracle and he's just... Uh, I'm going to sing the song pretty soon if I'm not careful. But anyway, you know, he's walking and leaping and praising God. And, and uh, all the miracles, again and again, you see the connection in the book of Acts between miracles and preaching opportunities. Oh, look, a crowd has gathered, you know, and then I think I'll preach the gospel. It's clear, clearly that that's what the Lord was doing. And so Peter and John preach the gospel. The Sadducees and the temple guards and all that, they come and arrest him and put him in jail. The next day they stand trial. Now, you might think, I mean, it's such an incredible story in Acts 4. It, you might forget that, real, that this is the very same group that condemned Jesus to death. Think about that. Think how you would feel spending the night in jail and you're going to face these same people. They condemned Jesus to death. Within a few chapters in the book of Acts, they're going to condemn Stephen to death and be so enraged they're going to run at him and kill him right there and then. And then it isn't long before they're in a settled and convicted way consistently going to seek to kill Christians. That's who they're about to witness to. And so the next day they assemble uh, together and Peter and John are brought before them and they charge them and say, uh, by what power or what name did you do this? Now that is a softball question. You just It's just coming in like 50 miles an hour. That's, that's waiting to be hit over the fence. By what power or what name did you do this? I'm glad you asked. Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know you, know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, Psalm 118, verse 22, he is the stone you builders have rejected. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, where is the cowardice there? Where is Peter running and hiding? Remember the slave girl? You're not one of his disciples, are you? Oh, no, no, I never heard of him. Three times he denied. This is just a short time before that. Three times he denied even knowing Jesus. Where did this power come from? Where did this courage, this boldness, it came from the Spirit? Then Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. And so he gives full credit uh, to, the, uh, to the Spirit. By the way, who wrote, who wrote the book of Acts? Who wrote it? It was Luke. 
Do you believe in the inspiration of the book of Acts? Well, who inspired Luke then? Who guarded Luke from error? Who was it that told him to write every word just the way it was written? Who? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit apparently wants you to know about the Holy Spirit. I've ever heard it said that the Spirit never testifies to himself. He never speaks about himself. He always points to Christ. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? There's no lack of, there's no, no lack of humility and servant mentality in the Spirit. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the Spirit wants you to know about himself. The Spirit wants you to know about his ministry in your life. That's why it says, Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, so that you would know that the same power is available for you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The phrase to the ends of the earth implies that this is a promise for to the end of time. We have power available. Peter and John filled with the Holy Spirit, they answered. And then in Acts 4, after they released them, you know, it's one of those things where they didn't know what to do. There's this beggar standing there healed. There was nothing they could say. They didn't know what to do. And so they warned them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter didn't say, okay, go home. No, he didn't say that. He says, you know, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So basically, Peter says, fair warning, we're not going to do it. We're not going to obey you. We're going to keep on preaching. We're going to keep on speaking. And then it says, after further threats, they let them go. They didn't know what to do. So then Peter and John uh, returned to their own people. There's nothing funny about this. There's nothing lighthearted. This is a very serious moment in church history. They're being threatened with death. Remember what Jesus said? Uh, Jesus said, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household? If they don't shrink back from killing the Son of God, will they shrink back from killing his disciples? Of course not. And so they were facing in a very real way their own deaths. And what do they do? They go to their own people. They gather the church together. They gather the church together and they pray. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. This is Psalm 2. And against his anointed. Let us break their chains and throw out their fetters. And they say, indeed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they all got together and fought against your holy servant Jesus. They did what your power and will had determined ahead of time should happen. No weak grasp on sovereignty there. They knew very well that it was the sovereignty of God that had brought this whole thing about. Now, look what they say. Now, Lord, consider their threats. It's not there. I'm sorry. It's just in my head. But it's in Acts 4. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What did they pray for? What did they ask for? Deliverance from the attack? Do they they ask, Lord, please help them not to arrest us? What did they pray for? Right. Filling of the Holy Spirit. Boldness. Boldness. God, give us even more boldness now. That's so amazing, isn't it? They're not trying to save their lives. Yeah, John. Why would Jesus? Well, that's a good, that's a good, yeah. Um, I would not use the language Jesus needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't use that. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I think what, again, this kind of language, it goes, it goes, the understanding of the Trinity goes beyond what we can fully comprehend. But I would, I would say there's a similar, a similar question. Why would Jesus, as, as God, need to get orders from his heavenly Father? Why would he need, as I perceive he did, to go every day to God and say, tell me what to say and do and I'll do it? He said, I speak nothing except what the Father has told me to say. As your will be done. So I think what we've got is a picture of, especially in the ministry of Jesus, total dependence on the Father. He doesn't do anything apart from, apart from the Father. And then total uh, filling or empowerment with the Spirit. So you see the Trinity saving humanity. Father, Son, and Spirit completely inter 
intertwined or inter-involved in the salvation? That's a great, great question. But I would shy away from the idea that Jesus needed to be filled with the Spirit. I think the Scripture doesn't use that language as far as I know. But I think we do have over and over. Then Jesus filled with the Spirit, you know, left uh, Luke 4.14, for example. Very good. So anyway, what's so beautiful is how the early church prays and how different it might be from our prayers. Lord, you know, and, and, and actually we've heard that Chinese Christians ask us, please don't pray that the government would stop persecuting us. Please pray that we would be bold and courageous. Now, I, I, if, you, if you look at a group of well-meaning Christians in America that are praying that the government would stop persecuting the church, and then you hear brothers and sisters saying, don't pray that. Pray that we'd be bold. Now, which of those lines up better with Acts 4? I think we see that Acts 4 mentality there. And Acts 4.31 uh, this is the answer to the prayer. After they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, you get the sense, as a result, spoke the word of God boldly. So there it is. And I think that that is so practical. Friends, it is so practical. Local churches that seem bereft of evangelistic power should pray as a group that the Spirit would be poured out on them for boldness in witness resulting in conversions. That's what they should do. Does that include this local church? Should we pray like that? Yes, we should. Will we pray like that? Yes, we will. When, you may ask, this coming Sunday, for example, Sunday evening. So be there, don't miss it, okay? You know, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Let's, let's, let's pray that God would move in a mighty way on Sunday evening when we gather at 6 o'clock for prayer. But we should pray for evangelistic power. We should pray for evangelistic fruit. Ask for what you want. Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You know what I get out of that? I'm going to talk about this a little on Sunday evening. But the better we know Jesus, the more things we ask from him. Because he has everything to give. Everything. And so we should ask him for things. I would also add, the better we know Jesus, the more we ask for the right things. Yes. Go ahead. Well, God just works differently there. I think, here's the thing, the, the, the logic I get out of this is, if you then, uh, where he says, uh, um, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? There's a change in status. That was then and this is now. Back then, we were enemies. Back then, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Our wills were contrary to God's, even in the matter of our own salvation. Isn't that a scary thought? Our wills were contrary to God's in the matter of our own salvation. And if God had just let you do what your will wanted, you'd go to hell. Now, you'd say, not as such. Maybe not. People don't know they're willing hell, but they are. They're willing rebellion, aren't they? They're willing to walk away from God. And God said, my will's bigger than yours. And God, by the power of the Spirit, gets in and transforms our will. And once he's done that, then we become co-laborers. We're actually able to, in concert with him, do things that are similar to his. And so I think there's just a difference in status. We're just different people. We're new creations in Christ. And therefore, we can start, you know, like Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Or more directly for us, he says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So what, the way I get it is that we are cooperating with the work of the Spirit. But I always believe the Spirit takes the lead. He initiates. Get up and pray. Come on, read the Bible. Memorize Scripture. Go ahead and witness to that person. He's prompting. He's prompting. He's prompting. You think you ever have an idea the Spirit didn't have first? You ever move out and the Spirit says, oh, that's a good, I'm, I'm coming with you. Let's go. You know, the Spirit takes the lead. He initiates. That's a very good question. Another question? Follow up on that? No? Okay. Very good. So the Spirit empowers for ministry. Then uh, Stephen, very good example of Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And then Revelation 22, 17. I've said this before. I just love it. <coughs> the Spirit and the bride say, come. What's so big about that? Why do I love that verse so much? Landis, why do I love the spirit and the bride say come? Who's the bride? Who's the bride of Christ? The church. 
And what does it mean, come? We'll read the whole verse. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of eternal life. That's the end of the Bible. That's how it ends. And so the spirit and the bride are both inviting sinners to come. And there's a cooperation then between the, the Christ, uh, spirit uh, of Christ and his bride. We are both saying the same thing. It's a beautiful thing. Anyway, spirit empowers for ministry. Spirit also gives spiritual gifts to God's people for ministry. 1 Corinthians 12 says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God uh, works them in all men. And by the way, do you notice the language there? Gifts, gifts, gifts. So it's like different kinds of gifts, different kinds of service, different kinds of working. I, I think this is all the same thing, just different words of the same thing. But then look what it says. Different kinds of gifts, but the same what? Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord, right? Different kinds of working, but the same God. Now, in the New Testament, that is triune language, isn't it? The Lord, the word Lord usually refers to Jesus. He's the Lord. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord Jesus. The word God, when just by itself, usually refers to God the Father. Usually. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't God thereby. I'm just saying in a Trinitarian kind of formula like this, you know, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of what? God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So the word God, I think, represents God the Father there. So what do I mean? I think that the triune God gives us our, our spiritual gifts. But it, it seems especially to be called spiritual gifts. They're given by the Spirit. And so the Spirit gives us these gifts. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So he focuses then on the person of the Spirit and say the Spirit ministers these spiritual, spiritual gifts. So what are, what, what are spiritual gifts? What do we mean by that? What are, what are examples of spiritual gifts? So teaching is a gift. What was the other one? Giving, helping. Exhortation, okay. Serving. Right. And, you know, there's, there's uh, just the, the, the places where these are mentioned are Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. Um, there's a certain, uh, certain places where spiritual gifts are listed. My, my take on that is that these, the, if you put a um, conglomerate list together, or, uh, assemble a list, I don't think it's meant to be exhaustive because none of the lists, is, lists are, are identical. So I think they're rather meant to be suggestive that the Spirit does different kinds of things. And my, my thinking on spiritual gifts continues to change and grow. I used to think you got this kind of spiritual gift package, the kind of way that GI got a, a bunch of stuff in boot camp, and, and that was what he like had. For the, and if he lost it, he had to pay and get, you know, you get this. Here, this is your equipment. And now go and go serve me. You know, but I don't think that's the case. I actually don't find anywhere that that's what, you know, the moment of conversion, you get your gift package, and then you're told to go out. I think that the Spirit gives gifts. That's all. And it doesn't say when. And so it could be that he may give you a gift for a ministry he's calling you to. So it could be you say, I don't think I'm called. I don't think I'm gifted to do that. Well, if you feel led by God to go do something, go out and try it. He may gift you at that point to do something. You know, I believe that gifts need to be done in conjunction with the local body. Like some of you may think you have the gift of teaching. And as far as I see so far, you may not. Okay. And so we, we use... We use gifts in conjunction with the body. Others may. And we, the local church body has to be a place where gifts are developed. You know that story. I know you know it, Tom, about the man who felt called by the Spirit to preach at, at Spurgeon's pulpit that Sunday morning. Do you hear that story? Well, Spurgeon said, unless the Spirit tells me, you're not preaching there. I mean, that's a, it's a cooperative thing. It's not just, I feel led by the Spirit to do such and such. The body has to corroborate that. But uh, anyway. That's a big deal. Anyway, well, but there's all these gifts, gifts of, of healing and miraculous powers and prophecy and distinguishing between spirits and speaking in tongues and all of that. So those are gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and there are others in Romans 12. All right, and also giving God's people courage to overcome spiritual opposition. Now, Matthew 10, 19 and 20. But when they arrest you, do not worry uh, about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Isn't that marvelous? One of my favorite things in church history is to study the words spoken by martyrs right before they died. What, what great lines are spoken. What great truths. What incredible things are said. Read the martyrdom of Polycarp sometime and, and, and just the way he carried himself and the things he said. Uh, you know, William Tyndale 
who wrote basically wrote the King James Bible. It later became the King James. But his translation was the basis of the King James Bible. What an incredibly gifted man. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Just an incredible statement. John Huss, what I taught with my lips, I now seal with my life. I mean, that's a great line. You can't come up with that kind of thing. And in Matthew 10, it says where it comes from. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Isn't that beautiful? He'll tell you what to say. He'll tell you the things to say. They don't even talk about spiritual gifts. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that would that would be a great problem. I think. I think spiritual gift. Uh, the concept of spiritual gifts is incredibly important. And I'm about to go back to Romans um, after this coming Sunday, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and then the next week I'm going to get back to Romans. And we'll find as we get into Romans 12, it's really remarkable. To me, one of the big insights in spiritual gifts is the first word um, of uh, Romans 12, 3. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 are very well known. Uh, it says, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. But verse 3 begins with the word for. For, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage, etc. Now, why is this so important? Well, he just got done talking about presenting your body as a living sacrifice, talking about knowing, testing, and approving what God's will is for you. And then he goes right from there to talking about spiritual gifts. So basically, in in the way that Romans 12 is structured, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for you has to do with your role in the body and how you, you use gifts. And one of my great burdens in this church is the thought that not every member of the church is using his or her spiritual gifts adequately. That's a great burden to me. Because I believe that is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for you. That you use your spiritual gifts to build up the body. And, and you need to do it. I think you'll be sick as a Christian if you don't use your spiritual gifts. I think you will not be healthy. You will shrivel up. You'll be inward focused. You will, and you'll miss a blessing. You'll miss the blessing of the joy of just being involved in God's work. As Lance was saying earlier, we actually get to cooperate in the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, go ahead, friend. Let's let's ask that question. How do how do people how do we recognize our spiritual gifts? How do how does that happen? How does a person have a good strong sense of what their gifts are? But before I even ask that question, is it important to know what your gifts are? Do you need to know? Why do you need to know? Suppose you look at the whole list of twenty some odd gifts and say, well, they all could be mine. You know, why would it be important to know what your gifts are? <laughs> you want to know why? Why is it? Yeah. yeah, as we alluded to earlier, I was not trying to be, you know, disrespectful in any way. But seriously, I mean, just like you wouldn't want somebody whose, you know, gift isn't some other things to do it. So that there wouldn't be a waste of time. All right. What, what are some other reasons why we would need to know what our gifts are? That's right. So you would do it all the more. If your gift is serving, you should serve. Right. Well, doesn't that whole phraseology imply you know that it is? You know, if your gift is teaching, you should teach. Well, it implies even before that, you know that it is so that you go do it. So the idea is so that you are lined up with what the Spirit's doing in your life and doing it. It's a a matter of maximization of your effort so that you spend your time doing what you're gifted to do. Okay, so we've established that it's important to find out what your gifts are. Now let's go to our brother's question. How do you do that? How do you find out what your gifts are? Yeah. In some ways, other people point out to you what your gifts are. How does that happen? Examples of like, um, like 
overseers and deacons and things like that, it seems as though people recognized attributes and characteristics, and so they came to those people and lifted them up to those roles. Okay. So perhaps, I guess you would have to have some kind of free format where you're all just kind of doing everything, and then someone says, wow, you're really good at this. And then wow. See, so it starts with activity. All right? It would be very tough for me to come to a person I've never met before sitting in one of these green chairs and say, your gift is encouragement. I just, I just know it's encouragement. Now, I could do that if I had the gift of prophecy or something like that. <laughs> but other than that, I can't. But as you were saying, t- tell me more about the free-flowing kind of thing. What I guess you you'd have to be doing some common things in which you're kind of partaking of different part or different gifts. Right. Like, and then other people are working with you, so you're observing each other while you're doing it. That's right. If you look at the list of spiritual gifts, other than the sign gifts, which you were talking about earlier about speaking in tongues and all that kind of thing, and that's a whole other subject unto itself, whether that is still going on in churches today. Um, But um, most of the gifts we are all going to do at some level, right? Encouragement. You may not have the gift of encouragement, but you should be an encouragement from time to time to somebody, right? Wouldn't you hope? All right. The gift of giving. Are you exempt from giving because you don't have the gift of giving? Please, God, no. All right? You need to not think that way. That's a wrong way to think. Everyone needs to give. And, and we can show that from Scripture. Everyone should give what he has purposed in his heart to give. So, therefore, the giving is universal. But there are some. And I have received so many blessings from people who have the gift of giving. It isn't a matter of the amount or even the kind of gift. It's the way it's done. It's just a beautiful thing to watch somebody who has a gift of giving give. And it doesn't matter whether it's to me or whatever. It's just there's a thoughtfulness and a creativity and a love in the way the gift is given. It's a beautiful thing. So go ahead. Go ahead. I think it's a joy, too. Yeah. It's such a joy when you, when you use the spiritual gift that the Lord's blessed you with. Isn't that wonderful? I think that joy that you're talking about there is the joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's testifying that He's pleased with you. You're, you're doing what you're supposed to do. That's beautiful. So, therefore, I think we're going to start practically with the fact that we're going to be doing a lot of things anyway. It may not be your gift to serve, but does that mean you can't scrape food off a plate and put it in the dishwasher downstairs if we're having a, a picnic or some other thing? Of course, you, everybody can do that. All right? And as we're doing common type serving things, after a while you're going to start to observe. You'll see things. The analogy I've used before is uh, when I was growing up, they used to have these really cheap balsa wood airplanes. You could buy them at the, at the convenience stores and all that. You remember these little lightweight wood things, a little metal clip in the front and red plastic thing or whatever. I loved them. I mean, I, I was a boy. You know, I like that kind of stuff. But the thing is, depending on how you set the wings, it would either do a barrel roll or a loop-the-loop or it'd fly straight or whatever. It all had to do with uh, setting the wings. I remember the first time reading the little printed instructions, you know, put the wings back at an angle and it'll turn left. And I was like, oh, really? So I'm just looking at it. How did I know it was true? How did I know how the wings were set and how it was going to fly? Well, you throw it. And once the, once the air gets under those wings, it's going to start taking over and going in a certain direction based on how the wings are set up. But just holding it before that, you're not going to be able to tell. And so basically just do things. Just serve. Fill your days with the good deeds that God wants you to do. But after a while, you start to see a pattern. People will start to come to you and say, you know, I was just so encouraged when this happened or whatever. The body's going to testify to you concerning what your gifts are. It's going to start saying, boy, that was just so beautiful when you did that. You know, I look at Eric uh, Campbell, who's our worship pastor, and I'll tell you what, uh, long before he came to us, people started coming and saying, when you play and sing, God just moved in my heart. Just moved in my heart. Nobody's ever told me that. Nobody has ever told me that. And they never will. As I've said before, I sing best corporately. I just really do. I, I really sing best corporately. And in the shower, which you will never hear. Excuse me? Huh? What? Yeah, I get to sing. No, I sing. I do. I enjoy singing just corporately. I sounded horrible last Sunday. I, my voice was it's still I'm recovering from a cough and all that. And I, I thank God that our brothers up in the AV thing do not tape me singing. You don't do that now, do you? Good. Praise God. In front of all these witnesses, because I've heard that done to pastors before. What? Good, good. Don't do it. Don't get a little master tape that you're going to use to blackmail me at some later time. Yes, go ahead. Somebody said, will you read scripture? And I 
wanted to say, no, I don't believe well, but I didn't want to say it's the truth. Mm. I don't think I'm an actor. Mm. Daniel asked me, would you like this? Mm. And I did the last Sunday, but I don't feel that that's my gift. Mm. Unless you try, how would you know? It's a very good point. And keep in mind what I said earlier. I believe God sometimes gives you a gift you never knew you had. He may give you a new gift. I, there's nothing in Scripture that tells me you get them all at the beginning of the Christian life and none after that. I Actually, it's a new way of thinking for me to say God may... He has the freedom, doesn't He, to equip you in a new way. So you may move out, and it could be you could get an equipping just for a mission trip or something, and you go out and God would give you what you need because that's who He had to work with, and He equips you and gifts you. But I think that there is a gifting that kind of settles in and it becomes your regular pattern of service. So any other thoughts on this? A very important topic, this issue of the spiritual gifts. Lance. No, not every point, but there's an intentionality. Romans 12, if your gift is serving, you should serve. If it is teaching, you should teach. Well, in order for me to be obedient to that, I have to carve out time in my life. And I did before I was a pastor, too. I was a Sunday school teacher I, you know, at several different churches. I did different things. And I had to make time to prepare my lessons, to memorize scriptures I was doing, I was, you know, a lot of things to get ready. So there was an intentionality. The way I look at it is this, all right? In my life, I'm going to have different, like the so-called pie chart, I'm going to have different sections that are given to each thing. The X number of hours for just physical maintenance, showering, sleeping, eating, different things. So much time with my family, different things. And, and that changes at different phases of my life. But there's always going to be a, a section of the pie that's for service in the local church. It's not going to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's not going to be one minute a day every five weeks. It's going to be a regular pattern of hours that are given in service in the context of the local church, right? I don't know what that is, and we want to challenge ourselves about how much that is. Can we do more? Are we doing too much? Sometimes you get too busy in church. Uh, but that is not most people's problem. Most, most people, it's the other way. All right, but then you say, okay, of those X number of hours, I would urge that you know what your gift is and spend the overwhelming majority of your time in that. In other words, if you're going to give five hours a week or something like that to service in the context of the local church and your gift is serving, then four of those five should be in that area. Does that make sense? Try to be intentional about it. Say, this is my gift. I need to do this. I need to do it a lot. Um, if your gift is encouragement, think of how to develop that ministry. How many people can I encourage? Don't just say, well, I, I seem to have the gift of encouragement. Be intentional about it. Find out how you can encourage the brothers and sisters to love and good deeds. You know, think about people you're likely to meet and say, what can I do to help this person go along in their life? There's an intentionality to it, I think. Okay? Well, it's a great discussion. We're, we're about out of time. But, you know, what I, I urge you to do is think about what you can practically apply to yourself in, in this discussion. All right? The Holy Spirit is in you if you're Christian. The Spirit has given you gifts. The Spirit gives you power to minister. Horace, I want to say something. One of the things that you go to for words and encouragement can actually rest on you. Make sure you're jealous. That's so true. That's so true. Thank you for saying that. That's right. That's such a that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. I wouldn't say we put it first. Uh, comes shortly after uh, your personal relationship with Christ, your personal prayer time, quiet time, your loving walk with Him. But out of that, you say, okay, Lord, I want to serve you now. What, what am I going to do? And that's when you know your gifts and you, and you use them. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the study we've had tonight, for the time we've had to study the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for how he is in us. We thank you for the way he empowers us for ministry. We thank you, O Lord, for the gifts of the Spirit. Father, I pray that each of my brothers and sisters in this room that are listening to me would know what their ministry is. If they are convicted that they really don't have a ministry, that they haven't spent time in it, could be in past years they had a ministry, but right now they really don't. Father, I pray that you would urge them to find a pattern, a regular pattern of ministry here in this local church. Father, that they would find a way to serve you. Father, I pray for that. And, and if there are any here who just don't know what their gifts are, that they would get active 
and, and start just serving in wonderful ways. And, and just little by little, some things are going to start to surface, some patterns. Lord, give them insight. I thank you for what Alana was saying about the joy that comes from using the gifts, oh Lord, and, and just actually having a role to play in the, in the growth of the body of Christ. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.